Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Each Monday through hurricane season, Worldview talks about what's happening in Puerto Rico in a series we call Puerto Reconstruction. Back in April, we interviewed Carmen Yulene Cruz, the mayor of San Juan, when she came through Chicago. And today we're talking with another mayor from Puerto Rico to get the latest on hurricane recovery. Josian Santiago is the mayor of Comorillo, and he's in Chicago to meet with Mayor Rahm Emanuel with the help of the Open Society Foundation's Mayor's Exchange. But first, we're going to hear from Carmen Hernandez. She's doing the interpreting for Mayor Santiago, and Carmen has her own story. She's a Chicago-based attorney, and Comorillo is her hometown. Um, Carmen, I'm sure that when Hurricane Maria hit and you were concerned about your hometown, how did you react? I was devastated to see Comerio featured on the National Oceanic Administration website and on the front headlines, including CNN, uh, showing the river grew 70 feet in height and basically flooded the entire town. Yeah, that sounds impossible. It was cited by NOAA as being a historic event, and they had not seen any uh, river rise at such a level. And what did you do after that? I mean, you know, was, you know everybody is underwater. Uh, well, I was actually having visions of homes being underwater in this town and uh, very frustrated that I was not able to call or Skype or get in touch with anyone. Uh, I have many relatives in Comerio. Uh, we heard Mayor Santiago in a radio interview. This is two weeks after the storm. He was pleading for help and he pled for water rice and beans. And he said that the people in the town were starving and that no food was arriving in Comerio. Um, My sister and I have been in Chicago since the early 90s. We looked at each other and couldn't believe what we were hearing. And we said we are going to bring water, beans and rice to the town of Comerio. So we each pledged $10,000, and we started a GoFundMe page, and we invited all our friends to match us uh, and to help us bring rice and beans and water to the town of Comerio. And we were very lucky that our friends took us up on that offer. And we were also very lucky that my company, Clayco, volunteered their airplane, the company airplane, so that we could make our first trip three weeks after the storm. And we loaded the plane with medical supplies, thanks to the help by the Puerto Rican doctors of Chicago, Doctores Boricuas de Chicago. Uh, 700 pounds of antibiotics and medical supplies loaded the Clayco plane. Um, We brought generators, we brought water filters, solar lanterns, and we were also very lucky to work with Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center here in Chicago, and they connected us to a woman, Awilda Colón, who owns Econos supermarkets, three of them in Puerto Rico, and through her warehouse, we were able to purchase a truckload of food consisting of rice and beans and water, and we loaded it the container to the very tippy top, And the mayor sent a police escort, and we were able to take that container to the town during the first week of November. That's excellent. People must have been very happy to see you. Yes, and we were privileged to work very closely with um, young members of the National Guard, the U.S. National Guard and the Puerto Rican National Guard, who helped us to distribute food and water to very needy homes during that phase of the storm. And now it's the rebuild phase still. 
We uh, continued our efforts, again, with the help of our uh, many generous donors on our GoFundMe page. We raised a total of $80,000, as I mentioned. In phase two, we went back in December and we distributed food vouchers so that people could go to the local supermarket and use that to continue buying food supplies and in that way also support local business. Um, With the mayor's program, we funded the first gift of Christmas, uh, which is a tradition that is done in Comerio, but they had no funds to do it. And so we funded that initiative and we went to all the schools and took the children a toy in December, in addition to giving out more solar lanterns and more water filters and more food vouchers. And then our final phase was just now in March when Mayor Emanuel was in Comerio. We were lucky enough to be able to fund for 30 families a little help, a little extra help with windows and doors to help them to finish rebuilding their homes. And that's how we closed out our hurricane relief initiative in Comerio with the mayor's assistance. Well, it sounds like that's a great uh, achievement, and we're talking with Josian Santiago, the mayor of Comarillo. Mayor Santiago, I wanted to ask, first of all, about Comarillo and the before and after of it. What was it like before? What happened afterwards? It's a town that's in about the middle of Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. in the center of the Puerto Rico in the mountains. Tell us a little about the before and after. Bueno, antes que nada, muchas gracias por la oportunidad de estar aquí en su programa y poder compartir la experiencia que hemos vivido en Puerto Rico tras el paso del huracán María. Comerio es un pueblo pequeño de la montaña de Puerto Rico. De Thank you for the invitation to be here, Jerome. Eh, It is uh, my pleasure to be here and to share with you the experience of what Comerio was like both before the Hurricane María and after. Comerio is a very small town in the center of the island, as you noted. Uh, it has uh, 20,000 residents, and approximately 60% of the residents of this town are below the poverty level. Pero uh, a pesar de, esa, de ese nivel de pobreza, es un pueblo muy integrado en una vida comunitaria muy intensa. Despite this uh, level of poverty, the town is very unified and has a very integrated community. It is a town that is very beautiful. It has immense natural resources in the mountains, a very green town, and also very intense cultural traditions. Lo que ocurre es que eh, Hacía tanto tiempo que no nos impactaba un huracán de esta, de esta manera que un poco se cogió confianza So what happened is that there was a complacency because a hurricane of this magnitude had not affected Puerto Rico for a very long time and not this town. And so possibly due to confidence or this complacency, there was a lot more construction near the river, on the riverbank. And the construction perhaps were not to the level of security or safety that they should have been. Um, and so therefore this storm, when it hit the town, had an impact of over 40% of the homes and businesses. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're getting an update on how Puerto Rico is doing with hurricane recovery with Josian Santiago. He's the mayor of Comarillo. We're talking about Puerto Rico every Monday through hurricane season in a segment we're calling Puerto Reconstruction. Later in the show, we kick off our week-long series on black comic book writers. Um, what about things like power? We hear a lot about places in the mountains in Puerto Rico that didn't get any power, still don't have any power. How about Comarillo? Eh, el 100% de la población y todo el comercio, el pueblo completo, quedó sin el servicio de energía eléctrica y sin el servicio de agua potable. 
The entire town, 100% of the 20,000 residents and all businesses were left without service for electricity, sewer, and potable water for six months. That's kind of hard to believe. What what kind of temporary things do you do in that situation? For, I mean, six months is not temporary. It's all the time. Yo llevo 38 años en el servicio público. I have been in public service for more than 38 years. Pensaba que en esta etapa de mi vida ya era un poco más liviana la carga. Sin embargo, con el huracán he tenido que vivir los meses más intensos de mi vida en el servicio público. I thought my load would be lightning as I am closer to the end of my public service career, and instead, these have been the most intense months in my entire career of public service. Everything collapsed, and it was difficult immediately after the storm to decide where to even begin uh, to address the devastated homes, the impeded roads, uh, the lack of electrical service, water service, sanitary service. It was overall very overwhelming. Salí del pueblo, hice un llamado de auxilio a través de los medios de comunicación. Creo que la radio fue muy The first thing was to make a plea for help, and I did that through the radio mostly. And we were fortunate that people heard us on the radio and through the internet, and the help began to arrive. Are you mad at anyone about the slowness of the response? Who do you blame for that? How do you reconcile six months without water and power? No era necesario estar tanto tiempo sin los servicios básicos. La ayuda tardó muchísimo. It wasn't necessary for it to have taken this long, six months. There were unnecessary delays. I would put the blame on the government of Puerto Rico and the U.S. federal government for the mismanagement of the recovery process. What did you think of the people of Comarillo? Did they band together and manage to begin getting things done during this time? I've heard a lot of stories in Puerto Rico about people banding together and getting stuff done. Bueno, la, la primera respuesta definitivamente fueron las propias comunidades. Afloró la solidaridad eh, y eh, en, las, en, en, en cada uno de, las, de los sectores de mi pueblo The communities definitely saw a very big growth in solidarity and unity. Each neighborhood within the town is referred to as a sector. The citizens of each sector stepped forward to address the situation together. It was thanks to the citizens uh, banding together that we were able to take measures. Uh, one of the first things that happened is each sector or neighborhood had a community leader that volunteered to assist to conduct a census of each neighborhood of who was bedridden, who was alone, who needed refuge. And then once that census was put together, the community banded together to address those needs. Y estoy aquí porque la primera ayuda que nos llegó I am here precisely because the very first helping hand that came to the town of Comerio was from our fellow Puerto Rican citizens here in the community of Chicago. What did they do? Chicago, desde Chicago nos llegó abastos, suministros de agua, alimentos, ropa. Well, from Chicago we received basic food items, clothing, medicine, and all basic items of personal care that were shipped to the town of Comerio and that were distributed from house to house. 
I'm talking with the mayor of Comarillo. It's in Puerto Rico, and there are uh, 20,000 people in the mountains in the center of Puerto Rico. Coming up later in the show, we're going to kick off our week-long series on black comic book writers. Stay tuned for that. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about your relationship with Chicago. Uh, Rahm Emanuel came and visited Comarillo when he was there in March. What kind of exchange are you having? You're meeting with Rahm Emanuel tomorrow. Um, what kind of relationship and mayor's exchange is this? Bueno, en primer término, fue, eh, nuestra relación nace con el Centro Cultural y la Comunidad Puertorriqueña de Chicago. Luego de ahí con el congresista Luis Gutiérrez, que hemos tenido una relación muy estrecha de muchos años, y a través de él llegamos a... a the relationship is born first out of connections with the uh, Puerto Rican Cultural Center in Humboldt Park and a relationship with Congressman Luis Gutierrez through those connections uh, was able to um, become a friend with Mayor Rahm Emanuel and that friendship uh, has been vital to uh, raising the voice of the town of Comerio and the needs of Comerio as part of this recovery process. Uh, Mayor Santiago, you, you have some stories, some special stories that you are always going to remember about what's happened in, in Hurricane Maria. Uh, what are they? Wow, muchísimas anécdotas, muchísimas experiencias que llegaron al corazón y al alma. Eh, en una ocasión salimos a buscar eh, fuera de mi pueblo eh, un camión. I have many stories to share. I'll share a few that are deep in my heart and in my mind. And on one occasion, we were out to look for a truck to help to um, recover uh, and collect plants and trees that had been torn apart by the storm. Cuando llego a los dealers de automóviles y camiones, no habían disponibles esos camiones. Me voy a retirar del lugar. So I had visited various dealers looking for a truck that would be uh, sufficient to recover all of the devastation, the fallen items, including homes that were destroyed. And there were none. There were none available. But as I was leaving a dealer, I came across this truck. But it was the type of truck that was used for carrying refrigerated goods. En ese momento, pienso, pues eso es una alternativa que tengo para poder adquirir hielo, ya que no hay servicio de energía eléctrica, y poder distribuirle eh, hielo a la familia afectada. So I decided that actually this truck would probably be very helpful to my town because we did not have electrical service and there were families that needed ice for a lot of reasons. And right then and there, I decided, well, I'm just going to buy this truck and acquire it. And I didn't have a purchase for it. I didn't have any paperwork. It didn't have a license plate. En el momento en que yo voy saliendo del dealer, Yo mismo guiando el camión, eh, me suena el teléfono celular porque era en la zona metropolitana, en mi pueblo no había comunicación. Es la primera vez que me suena el teléfono. As I'm leaving the dealer and I'm driving the truck myself, I didn't even have someone with me to be the driver. I'm leaving the dealer and for the first time my phone rings. It's the first time it's rung since the storm. I got a cell signal. And when I pick up the phone, it was a young man who was offering to give me refrigerated goods for my hometown to help me feed the people of my town. Y yo les contesto, pero ¿cómo es posible que ustedes sepan que yo estoy comprando en este momento un camión refrigerado? Y entonces ellos me responden, pues no sé, pero necesitamos que venga hoy mismo 
porque tenemos artículos. It was two young men who were natives of Comerío, and they said to me, well, we didn't know that you have a refrigerated truck right now, but we need you to come pick up these food items now, because otherwise they will be spoiled. And so he drove the truck that he had just finished acquiring over to these two young men, where they filled it up all the way, and they filled it up with meats and yogurts and items that he then took to Comerío and was able to feed hundreds of people. <laughs> That's amazing. How long was the truck the refrigerator for Comerillo? <laughs> no, todavía hoy el camión estuvo hasta hace poco Up until recently, he continued to use the truck to continue to deliver ice to families that had no electrical service for many months. The truck got a lot of use as, <laughs> as, a, as a way of delivering ice and refrigerated goods to families that did not have. Una buena compra. <laughs> yeah, it was a good buy. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll have more from the mayor of Comarillo. We'll talk about the Harvard mortality study on Puerto Rico that's made so much news. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Each Monday through hurricane season, Worldview talks about what's happening in Puerto Rico in a series we call Puerto Reconstruction. And we're getting an update on how Puerto Rico is doing with Josian Santiago. He's the mayor of Comarillo. It's in Puerto Rico, and there are uh, 20,000 people in the mountains in the center of Puerto Rico. And a lot of us read about the mortality study from Harvard, you know, in the ballpark of 4,500 people they thought were killed in the hurricane. What did you think about that? Were, did anyone die in Comarillo? Creo que, que el estudio está muy cerca de la realidad. I think the study is very close to the reality of what happened. Lo doloroso y lo más triste es que, en primer lugar, que fueron las zonas más pobres, eh, las personas más vulnerables. Um, it is a very painful and sad reality uh, that the poorest and the most vulnerable of the population were the ones affected by this increased death rate. In the town of Comerio, uh, the death rate increased by more than 25% over the same period. Y toda la discusión que se ha generado luego de que el gobierno no ha querido reconocer esa cantidad de muertos eh, es un proceso que ha sido uno que uh, this whole process where the federal island level government has failed to recognize these statistics or to support the investigation into pinning down exactly the number of deaths has been viewed as an insensitive uh, towards the pain of the families that suffered through these losses and has compounded the sadness and the feelings of pain that the people are suffering de cara al futuro Ahora estamos enfrentando eh, otro desafío y es que eh, ante la crisis fiscal el gobierno está anunciando esta semana el cierre de más de 20 salas de emergencias. 
Currently, we are experiencing a, in the form of a continuing fiscal crisis, uh, the most recent development being that uh, more than 20 emergency rooms in the smallest and poorest municipalities on the island are being closed, and that is only serving to increase deaths that are resulting from lack of access to medical care. Did Comorio have schools close as a result of the fiscal crisis? Five schools closed in Comerio. Hemos estado dando esa batalla para que no fuera de esa forma, pero lamentablemente... We have been battling to try to prevent that from happening, but it's a process that happened without any dialogue with the communities and no dialogue with the mayors. You've only got 20,000 people. Five schools is how many schools do you have left? Cerca de 10 escuelas. El problema es la distancia, ¿no?, de de las comunidades que ahora van a tener que transportarse a, a, a otra comunidad para poder llegar a la escuela que le han asignado. Eh, It's eh, been very challenging and will continue to be very challenging. There are 10 schools that remain, uh, but the challenge is transportation in a mountainous region, a mountainous town, how families are able to reach schools in other areas of the town. It remains a difficult challenge. And uh, we have attempted to uh, focus on the fact that of the money that is claimed to be saved, $14 million or so, that it could come instead from other areas of the budget and not have resulted in this much difficulty for the school system and affecting education. I understand that the Puerto Rican agenda is helping out with a solar-powered community center in Comarillo. Mm-hmm. Explain what that is and how it will be important for the city. In nuestras comunidades existen centros comunitarios, centros comunales, que son un salón donde se reúne la comunidad, celebran sus actividades, cumpleaños, reuniones, talleres pero no estaban preparados para una emergencia como la que vivimos. Uh, we have community centers in Comerio where um, there are family celebrations there, birthdays and other occasions, and workshops, but they were not prepared for the devastation that occurred or uh, the refugee role that we saw. So in speaking with the Puerto Rican agenda, we've addressed that there is a need to make these community centers more resilient uh, so that they are more prepared to serve in a, as a community resource uh, by having a generator, for example, a water cistern, a functioning kitchen, so that they are able to provide what communities need in times of a devastating crisis like we saw. Es importante destacar el hecho que todavía hoy, cuando ya comenzó la nueva temporada de huracanes, en mi pueblo hay sobre mil hogares Uh, it's important to note that currently Comerio has 1,000 homes that have as a roof a blue tarp uh, from FEMA, and that blue tarp is not secure enough to withstand a tropical storm, much less a hurricane. And the Puerto Rican agenda is helping the town of Comerio to address that situation. Hurricane season now is upon you, and this is a huge problem. This is a, a, a huge worry. 1,600 homes without roofs is bad. Hay mucha ansiedad, hay, hay mucha depresión colectiva. Eh, la ciudadanía está muy preocupada y nosotros también, eh, ante cualquier eventualidad, no vamos a tener suficiente alojamiento para... 
There is a collective anxiety and even depression among citizens that are very worried uh, that in the event of another storm, there is a, a lack of appropriate um, refuge or shelters that can accommodate um, the residents of 1,000 homes, which would signify more than 3,000 people. We don't have the resources to accommodate that in the event of another big storm. Se habla de que se han invertido miles de millones de dólares en la reparación del sistema eléctrico pero está muy frágil. There's a lot of talk about the millions of dollars that have been spent in restoring the Puerto Rico electrical grid. However, the repair work still has left the electrical grid in a very fragile and vulnerable state and likely unable to withstand a major storm. I'm talking with the mayor of Comarillo. It's in Puerto Rico and 20,000 people in the mountains in the center of Puerto Rico. There's been a lot of talk about microgrids and the advantages of microgrids for maybe some communities, but others seem to feel that microgrids are something that means you never get connected to the grid again. How do you feel about microgrids as a solution? Yo creo que es lo correcto, es la es la alternativa de futuro. Eh, y, y tomando en cuenta incluso la energía solar, eh, sistemas hidroeléctricos, nosotros tenemos una estructura de una hidroeléctrica abandonada. I think that it is the correct approach to focus on microgrids for an electrical service for the island, but also solar as an alternative and also hydroelectric service. Uh, the town of Comerío has a dam that is quite large and he didn't say this, I'll throw this in, in a certain era, actually did supply electricity to the entire island, but it was decommissioned. And it, there's an opportunity to create a microgrid, is what the mayor is saying, uh, surrounding that dam in order to make it a producing hydroelectric system. Who would make that kind of investment? Bueno, estamos creando una, eh, lo que se llama una alianza público-privada. Hay eh, compañías norteamericanas que administran Sistemas hidroeléctricos en, en varios estados de la Unión. Uh, we are currently exploring a public-private partnership as a potential solution for converting the dam into a hydroelectric microgrid. And that is from one of the states, a U.S.-based public-private partnership. Sometimes we hear statistics about Puerto Rico, about all the money spent in the recovery effort. Did Comarillo see things like that, see money coming into the town and getting spent on housing and things like that? Bueno, uh, FEMA ha otorgado ayuda individual eh, a ciudadanos para la reparación de sus casas. El problema es que a veces la cantidad que está asignando no es suficiente para llevar a, a convertir ese hogar en uno seguro. Well, FEMA has been able to provide individual financial assistance to citizens of Comerio. That money, however, in most cases has been insufficient to allow a family to rebuild the home that was devastated by the storm. But the municipality of Comerio itself has not received any funds from any resource, whether it's the government of Puerto Rico or federal government. None of the municipalities have received any funding from the federal government at the municipal level. Housing and urban development, anybody? No, hasta el momento, la asignación de fondos que se ha estado anunciando es a través del gobierno de Puerto Rico, del gobierno estatal. Ellos estarán evaluando y haciendo un plan so HUD has announced that certain financial aid is going to Puerto Rico, but that has been designated to be funded through the territory of Puerto Rico at the island government level, which is referred to as the federal island level. 
um, not directly to municipalities and that many of the mayors are reclaiming uh, that this money should instead go directly to the local level because the local governments have more understanding of where the need is and can more effectively deploy those funds than at the territory level. Are there any good things that came out of this? Did you, I mean, it seems like such a bad story, the whole Hurricane Maria deal. But did you find any silver lining in any of this? Hay muchas lecciones aprendidas. Gobierno federal y gobierno estatal deben contar más con el rol. Uh, there were many lessons learned. One of the biggest lessons that the federal and state governments should take away from this is to support more local governments, uh, local municipalities who are closer to the ground, who were closer and better able to resolve situations um, that needed immediate attention and to save lives. Well, good luck in the future. And Josian Santiago is the mayor of Comarillo. It's a mountainous municipality in central Puerto Rico. He's been in town to meet with Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and he's been working with the Puerto Rico Agenda in Chicago on relief efforts. They're getting a solar-powered community center. And thanks very much to Carmen Hernandez for interpreting, and she's originally <laughs> from Comarillo, too. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> gracias, gracias. Muchas gracias. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we kick off our week-long series on black comic book writers. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm having a series of discussions about representation in comics. With me now is Vida Ayala. They write on comics like Supergirl, Wonder Girl, Batgirl. They also worked on Puerto Rican Strong, Bitch Planet Triple Feature, and Vida's latest is The Wilds. Thanks very much for joining us, Vida Ayala. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm impressed that you were able to pronounce my name (laughs) <laughs> right out the gate. That's really impressive. We're flying. <laughs> How did you get into comics? Why did you want to do comics? As a reader, I've been flipping through comics for a very, very long time, probably since I was about five or six. Uh, one of my first comics was a Wonder Woman comic, and my second was definitely an X-Men comic. And for me, what drew me to them as a reader and as a kid was seeing people that looked like me in the roles of being heroes or being complex characters. And that was really appealing because in other mediums, you didn't really see that. I'm Puerto Rican and black and uh, designated female at birth. And that's just, at the time in the 80s, in the you know mid-80s, that wasn't really something you saw. I worked comics retail for about 10 years, starting when I was 19 until uh, about 29. I've just been around comics my entire life, and I have always wanted to write. I'll, I'll write anything. I started in prose and then went into comics, but I'll I'll write anything. And so I was presented with an opportunity to pitch at a very small, at the time, company called Black Mask Studios. Um, They're the ones that put out the wilds. And, you know, I was like, why not? It's an opportunity to tell stories that I want to tell. And it ended up working out. And uh, I made connections in other companies like DC, where I was able to write, like you said, Supergirl and Wonder Woman and Batgirl and 
you know, how do you turn that down? <laughs> yeah. What was that like to, I mean, your first comic was Wonder Woman, and then you got to write Wonder Woman. But you, you said you related to Wonder Woman as someone who was like you. You know, some people would say she's not entirely like you <laughs> in several respects, but how do you finesse that? That's a semi-funny story, I guess. Uh, when I was a kid, I'm Afro-Latinx myself, very, you know, I have darker skin and very curly hair, but many people in my family on the Puerto Rican side, uh, you know, there's all kinds of shades there. And when I first saw Wonder Woman on the cover of that book, I thought she was Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, I, I've told this story before, but, you know, I, I looked at her and here she was wearing, you know, like booty shorts with stars on them and like a halter top with like a gold eagle and these big bangles and like a tiara. And I was like, oh, that's my cousin. She looks just like one of my cousins. <laughs> um, and I believed for way longer than I should have that she was Puerto Rican uh, until my mom broke my heart and was like, you got to let this go. Um, so for a long time, mistakenly, I saw that as representation of myself. And then later on, she's been written as you know, possibly bisexual. And that was something that was really important to me as a queer person. I don't identify as bisexual, but, you know, all my brothers and sisters and everything in between, you know, that was really important to me. And she's just a really strong lady who fought, but also her primary concern was love and protection and helping people. And I identified so deeply with that, that when I was given the chance to write her, I, I was crying, actually. I I tough it out online and I make a lot of jokes, but I was crying because I'm a very delicate person. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, you know, the kind of universal human quality of love and things were the things that were really driving you there. And the the missing, the kind of identifying someone as yourself, I mean, that seems like that happens all the time in comics and in characters and uh, people just kind of uh, think, well, that person is like me. I agree. I think that as a person of color, it is a little harder in some ways, but I was very fortunate in that. I grew up in New York City, which is a very, very diverse place. And so in this country, the default, if there's any ambiguity, is usually white. But because I had grown up in this place, I grew up in the Lower East Side during the 80s and 90s. So there were just all kinds of people all over the place. And so for me, the default with ambiguity was not white because it wasn't my experience. Um, that's not normal, and I recognize that, but I count myself lucky. And then as I grew older, as most people do, I started to relate to characters that were different from me, some in some very fundamental ways, but similar in the ways that mattered to me. Um, explain another character that was like that for you. Well, I guess I'll go into... My number two favorite character of all time is Renee Montoya, who is a DC character as well. And she was the first time that I'd ever seen a lesbian Latina character portrayed as not a joke. And I myself am non-binary, but I identified very deeply with a lot of her struggles um, with identity and with kind of how much of yourself you reveal in different situations and with anger. And so, you know, as I've learned about who I am, some little details have changed. But overall, I relate so deeply to that character. <laughs> I'm talking with Vita Ayala. They write on comics like Supergirl, Wonder Woman, and Batgirl. Vita's latest is The Wilds. How have you been able to move out of these characters, these kind of long-established characters, 
And it sounds like you're doing stories that are much more original now, and you're able to do things that are much different uh, that reflect you. Since I learned how to read and write, I've been writing my own characters as well as, and I'm sure this is the case with almost every writer, emulating characters that I've seen write. So for me, I've always been doing it on the side. And when I was presented with the opportunity to pitch my own stuff, to pitch my creator-owned stuff to Black Mask and to Volt Comics, I jumped on it and I had pitches ready and I had ideas even that weren't as developed, but I could definitely develop ready. So I think... It's years of preparing yourself by doing the work for yourself. But you're able to do things like um, you participated in the Puerto Rico Strong books. How do you begin to put parts of you know yourself out there? <laughs> I say this all the time, but success for me personally has been 90% me hustling before anyone knew who I was to polish myself as much as I could and then talking to people about the stories that I want to tell. And people tend to respond well to stories that you're passionate about. And so uh, when opportunities for anthologies present themselves, like for Puerto Rico Strong uh, or the Mine Anthology, which I had a story in, or This Nightmare Kills Fascists, that's another anthology, people already kind of know the stories I want to tell and they're open to them. All right. Puerto Rico Strong had super deep messages about Puerto Rican identity in it. Sure. I was approached by one of the editors uh, to do a story, and I was very excited. Uh, Again, I'm Puerto Rican, and it was right after the hurricane, and I was looking for ways to help as much as I could. I mean, my family, most of it is on the island, and so we, of course, sent money and supplies, but I really wanted to help with something further. And so when I was contacted by the editor, I jumped on board immediately. I was like, whatever you want me to do. And then they requested that I do a story that related to the history of Puerto Rico. And I immediately knew what kind of story I would tell. So uh, if I had been a boy, my mother would have named me a Guaybana after this chief who I ended up writing about for this story. And I was like, I'm going to do as much research about him and the rebellion of 1511 as I can and see how I can fit that in. And doing all the research, I was like, actually just presenting the history and then working with the artist to do some sort of metaphor would be great because the history itself is very rich and very interesting and very dramatic. That one almost wrote itself. (laughs) (laughs) And this is about the indigenous people of Puerto Rico. Yes, it is about the Taino people who were there and conquered by the Spanish And most of them wiped out. Yeah. Larger than the percentage of Hawaiians or something. It seems like... It was insane how many people died. The Spanish did some pretty heinous things to the population in general, but especially to anyone who was kind of strong enough to rebel. (laughs) But I'm partially Taino, and pockets of us persisted. And at this point, there are many people who share in Taino heritage, which is awesome. And I wanted to kind of tell a story where we saw one of the most horrific things that my people had to endure, but also give hope at the end and show, no, but we're still here and we're still strong and we can survive this too. That story's in the the anthology Puerto Rico Strong. Yeah. And I want to hear something about the wilds. You mentioned your kind of a a horror fan, and it seems like you've moved 
away from some of the traditional characters and doing more horror-oriented material. And I, I got a little scared reading The Wilds. So, <laughs> Sorry. But not sorry, I guess it worked. <laughs> Thematically, The Wilds is a story about how marginalized people, especially people of color, especially black women, are asked, not even asked, are expected to do all this physical and emotional labor and not rewarded for it and often used up until they just can't anymore. And so this is an attitude that we have in this country. We expect people to do all this work and then <laughs> they don't get rewards for it. This is pretty much across the board. But I think that we probably could agree on the fact that this is especially true for black women. And unfortunately, this is kind of a story that as people of color, as black people and as people designated female at birth that are black are told, we buy into it a little bit. Oh, if we don't work and work and work and, you know, retweet and, you know, show up all the time, then we're all going to die. That's the feeling that we get. And so it's very urgent. And it's a really hard thing to explain to people just like that, right? Because that's a really hard thing to hear. So I decided to write a book about that, but to couch it in what I think is a genre that's really approachable to everyone. Walking Dead is one of the most popular franchises on the planet at this point, right? So... People love survivalist stuff. People love zombie stuff. And in those situations, every little piece of drama is going to be super heightened. So I was like, cool, that's the perfect kind of vector for this. And me and my co-creator, Emily, didn't want it to be something that wouldn't stand out. And we wanted to also tell stories about nature and about what we found kind of eerie but also beautiful. And so the zombies in our book... They have flowers growing out of them, right? They're not rotting. And they they look very calm and placid, and they're very beautiful. We thought that would be really creepy. Um, so it's a book about moving from believing this hype that if you don't wear yourself out, then everything will be ruined, to going, now hold on a second. I'm going to do what I can to help everyone that I love, but the burden should be equal across the board. It's not fair, and I won't stand for it. No one really wants to hear that, like I said. So there are zombies and <laughs> there's a compound of people and there's a lot of like drama. I think there's a little bit of something for everybody in this book. If you've ever worked in any sort of service industry, you will definitely relate to the characters, the main characters in this book. If you can imagine the worst day that you had at your service industry job, that's just their life. <laughs> I mean, if you identify as queer. Hopefully you'll enjoy the book. The main character, Daisy, is a queer woman of color. You've managed to cram all your interests into this book. I can't stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> I write stories when they're creator-owned, and even as much franchise work as I do, I try and put this in there. I write stories for past versions of myself. Uh, I write stories that would have been something that I wanted to see or needed to see. You know, I'm I'm in my 30s now, and when I grew up, there weren't a lot of stories about brown people where they were the main characters and it was from their perspective. There were almost no stories, big mainstream stories. There were plenty of kind of underground stuff, but there was no big mainstream stories where, you know, the leads were queer people, especially not designated female at birth, and it wasn't a joke. There were very few stories <laughs> about queer people of color being the protagonist, and it wasn't a joke. They did exist, and they do exist, but it's hard to find them, and I I want to write f 
for people like me to see themselves, but also for people that aren't like me to see, like, we exist and we're awesome just like you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm having a series of discussions about representation in comics. Vita Ayala, they write on comics like Supergirl, Wonder Woman, and Batgirl, and they work on Puerto Rico Strong and Bitch Planet Triple Feature. Vita's latest is The Wilds. Your next book, I've got to ask a couple questions about it because it seems really interesting, too. Our work fills the pews. And this is what the U.S. is like in Trump's second term. Am I, do I have that right? <laughs> so uh, when me and my writing partner, uh, Matthew Rosenberg, first came up with the idea, I think it was 2012 at the time, that was what we said. And it was kind of a joke, right? Because we didn't think that that would ever be a thing. Now it's a little scarier. But yeah, I mean, it's as extreme as it can get, right? A lot of rights have been taken away from many different kinds of citizens. The government has put non-married women into camps for their own protection, but really they're internment camps. It's very difficult to be brown. It's almost impossible to be queer uh, unless you work for the government. So the main character is a man named Marcus Melville, and he works for the government. He tracks down free women, and he brings them in to be put into these camps. Uh, It starts off real rugged and Clearly, it is about kind of the things that we have to do in order to survive and then whether or not it's worth it to survive or to try and break away from that and to really live your life and to do as good as you can, even though it's dangerous. So Marcus goes from working for the government to kind of bucking that off and being like, no, this is wrong. (laughs) I would rather put my life in jeopardy and fight this than to continue to go along with it. And it kind of moves along a theme of marginalized people turning against each other? When we talk about it, the underlying kind of idea is that one of the ways that the people in power stay in power is by dividing everyone else up. So pitting queer people against non-queer people, but also brown people against each other, women against each other, and so on and so forth. And so Marcus is a gay black man, and he works for the government tracking down women Well. That's brown people and queer people against women in that way. And then he kind of comes to a place where he realizes we can fight this together. We don't have to play their game. Their game is bad. It's not worth it. Thanks. Trump's second term is going to be rough. Yeah, I guess so. Like, Hopefully not. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question about another anthology you worked on, uh, Bitch Planet. Tell us about your contribution there. Sure. Uh, Bitch Planet is a series by Kelly Sudaconic, and she was very kind to ask me to write a story for that, and I decided to write a story. So in this universe that she's created, women are property. It's very futuristic. You know, imagine the Jetsons, but like horribly dystopian, (laughs) which I think they kind of are, but that's besides the point. Um, So if you're a non-compliant woman, you're sent to this prison, which is lovingly nicknamed Bitch Planet. So her and her co-creator decided that they would do an anthology series and have people come on and do stories. So I wrote a story called uh, To Be Free, and it is about a performer, a dancer, (laughs) Molly Lightly, who is contracted. She's a thief on the side. That's how she gets her kicks and how she feels free. She is a cat burglar, and she is contracted to go into this place where they put all this contraband art and books and speeches and all this stuff to steal something for a group of women and bring it out. And 
it's kind of sad. <laughs> it's a short one. It's eight pages. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't read it, but the thing that she's contracted to steal is a metaphor for what they want. And my, my co-creator, the artist on the piece, uh, Rosie, was incredible, truly incredible. Would some of the traditional comics purveyors, do they make any effort to hang on to someone like you, someone who is a black woman, non-binary? Would that be valuable to them? Would they create more space for you to do things that uh, you want to do? Or are they kind of still economically geared towards the kind of traditional output? Is there that kind of room to maneuver? That's a good question. <laughs> I can't speak for them. I can only speak from my experience in working with them. And I've worked with DC primarily, although I ha have done some work with uh, Dark Horse and Image. DC has always been really, really supportive. And I have had the opportunity to come back and do stories multiple times a year, some geared more towards, you know, traditional stories. I mean, as much as that can be possible, right? So I, I was lucky enough to write an issue of Batgirl for the annual um, and a short for Wonder Woman for that annual last year as well. But I also was able to write an issue of Supergirl where I got to uh, work with Steve Orlando, who's the main writer, and we introduced a non-binary character of color, which was awesome. Cool. Who was it? The character's name is Lee Serrano. It was issue 19. And I, I actually really like that issue as well. I think as far as I can tell, and again, I can't speak for them, but it seems like what they're interested in is good stories. If they're working with someone that's new, like myself, and supporting and fostering that person. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Vida Ayala. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Vita Ayala writes on comics like Supergirl, Wonder Woman, and Batgirl. They also worked on the anthologies Puerto Rico Strong and Bitch Planet Triple Feature. Vita's latest is The Wilds and has an upcoming book called Our Work Fills the Pews, which sounds interesting. It's about what the U.S. is like in Trump's second term. Thanks a lot for joining us, Vita. Thank you so much for having me. Tune in tomorrow at 12.40 as we continue our Black comic book series with David F. Walker. He's written for Marvel and DC. He's also a big movie guy and ended up reviving Shaft as a comic book. He also wrote the first new novel starring Shaft in 40 years. Hope you can join us tomorrow for David F. Walker. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. The Black comic book series this week is produced by Galilee Abdullah. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.